There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. This evening, we talked to a Wicklow couple about their harrowing and terrifying ordeal to bring their newborn daughter Tilly home to Ireland as the Russian assault began on Ukraine. So we can get Tilly through a war zone, we can get everyone to help us get her home safe to Dublin. But the minute we land in Dublin airport, I am not recognised as her mum. Stars of state media, how the Irish Times found two prominent Irish MEPs have an international media footprint. Why will you not comment, please? No comment for the Irish Times? No comment. And later, I look at all the other big stories of the day. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. Questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. First tonight, the United Arab Emirates has frozen the assets of the Kinahan Organised Crime Group. It's the latest blow for the organisation, which last week was hit by heavy sanctions by US authorities. This included $5 million bounties on the heads of those described as its most senior figures. They're thought to be based in Dubai, where officials say the freezing of their assets is in line with its international commitments to tackle crime. Well, I think what we've seen, maybe to answer your last question, is a direct response from the announcement last week by Angarda Shiakana, by our colleagues in the UK and in particular in the US. Uh, and I do believe it's a direct response too. And I welcome um, these um, changes that have happened. Um, I think a very clear message was sent last week. What was implicit is now explicit. And anybody doing business with the Kinahan Organised Crime Group uh, really need to rethink who they're working with and take on board, uh, I suppose, what was outlined by Angarda Shiakana and members. Um, from the US uh, Treasury and others last week as well. Ukraine's president has confirmed that Russia controls most of the besieged port city of Mariupol, but insists some of his country's troops remain there ready to fight. They're maintaining a stronghold at a steel plant in the city, but the Russian president has stopped short of ordering his army to storm the complex. Meanwhile, the US president has pledged a further $800 million worth of weapons for what he termed Ukraine's front lines of freedom. Our unity with our allies and partners and our unity with the Ukrainian people is sending an unmistakable message to Putin. He will never succeed in dominating and occupying all of Ukraine. He will not, that will not happen. In February of this year, Gavin and Leslie Ann Grimes from County Wicklow traveled to Ukraine ahead of the birth of their daughter, days before the Russian invasion began. As the first missiles were launched by Russia, the couple anxiously tried to make plans to get their newborn baby girl, baby Tilly, who was born by a surrogate, home. 
She spent the first week of her life in a bomb shelter before being reunited with her parents. Earlier today, I sat down with Gavin and Leslie Ann to hear their harrowing story of escape from Ukraine. So bring me to the night before um, the invasion. You're in a hotel, you're in Kyiv. It's almost the due date. You're yeah. so, yeah, close, so close, super excited. And, and everything was very normal that evening in the hotel. Yeah. I mean, completely there was a, normal. a wedding taking place. Um, there was um, there was wrestlers, international yeah, the, the wrestlers, re wrestling having dinner in the same well. restaurant that we were having our food but in. The day before that, we'd spent mm. an amazing day with our surrogate mum and in the park with her little boy, and and we you know we were talking to her. What's her view and her husband's view? And no way was invasion going to happen. No. Like absolutely no way. And we you know through that park, it was just full of kids, mums and dads, playground. going about you know their everyday life uh, in, in, in normal. The Wednesday before was the initial date that uh, was in the media that the invasion was going to happen. That came and went, with, with, you know. And uh, so, yeah, we were pretty confident that it was going to be, you know, fine for our whole duration. But you went to bed that night. This was the 23rd of February and yeah. everything changed. Tell me about the moment that you woke up, Les. So we both, we both woke up together. We had no idea why we both jumped and woke up together. And then there was another bang and we thought there was, because it was so busy last night, we thought there was parties out mm -hmm. outside the hotel, there was fireworks, there was a lot of... Um, um, there was, there was, the yeah, there was groups of men kind of in defiance singing national songs every night yeah. we were there. We thought there was, was, there was those guys, right? Yeah, but then we heard the third bang and we instantly, instantly knew what it was. It was such, the sound was such a dull, dull boom, boom yeah. and you just just you can still hear that sound in your head right now and we knew we went straight over to the window had a look just to see what we could see and the balcony of our hotel room and then the scariest thing that you've ever seen a missile went straight over our heads and the sound again was just was like a fighter jet or something yeah. it was just it was just yeah it was, it was just scary and we had a plan in place and our plan was to um, drive to the west of the uh, west of the country, Lviv, picking up our surrogate mom and her family, her mom, her little boy, and her husband on the way. So we put that plan into place. When we got down to reception, the receptions were giving out, you know, sheets of of paper with bomb, bomb shelters, shelters on, and there was hundreds of these bomb shelters, and people were running in, in panic. So then you're you're in the car, and, and you know, our surrogate mom changed her mind. Uh, she wanted to stay with her family. She didn't. She felt that it was going to be just. It was her due date. She was just wanted to stay. With she her wanted family. to stay, and she said she, she was going to be she safe, safe. And she thought that the missiles wouldn't last. And of course, we respected that. You know, it's her, her completely her decision. But we have a little boy at home, so we have to get Les, Les to safety. So the plan was to get Les to uh, Lviv and I come back for the birth. Yeah. Yeah. But in that moment, you know, you're 24 hours potentially from your daughter yeah. being oh born. Yeah. The daughter that you have waited <laughs> long for, journey for, yeah. for a long time and you had to get in a car and you had to leave the city. What did that feel like for you? Oh, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. Um, but we knew she hadn't been born yet. We knew we could. We had time on our side. We had time to get meet safety for Tig and yeah. time to go back and get her. Yeah, and the plan and was to you know, get Les to Lviv and then I would, I would come straight back. But, yeah. but then you start on that journey and you're driving to the city and you see these families running out of their buildings, you know, families kneeling on the ground, praying. Um, so it's scenes that will stay with us forever. Um, blind panic and fear of, of what's happening, where will the next missile hit? Yeah. And um, 
halfway on that journey, we get reports that Lviv is under attack yeah, as well. So we pivoted so we to our... Track again. Yeah. We, yeah. we went to our next plan C, so we went to the Polish border where we had a friend that yeah. was going to meet us and I was going to stay with him then for a night or two until we figured out what our next plans were. We get to the Polish border and it's only when we get there we realise, you know, the, the scale and the extent exactly of this refugee crisis. Literally yeah. tens of thousands of families making their way to the border. And um, that journey to the border, I mean, the car, your, your chauffeur, your taxi driver yeah. could only bring you so far in the car. So tell me what happened after so that. So we got, we got really close. We've been in the car 20 hours and then we were just, we were sitting in the car. We weren't moving. We hadn't moved in an hour, an hour and a half. So we said, we'll get out, we'll walk. We heard reports that it would be two hours walking and we were like, okay, we, we can do that. Like and 16 hours. Yeah, so once we kept going and going, the queues just got bigger and we just longer and longer and 16 hours through the night. And you're there with your We had your our suitcases, cases, our empty baby car seat for our little baby that we didn't have with us at the time. A lot of the women there, Gav, couldn't figure out why you were getting through the border. Yeah, and, and, and that's right. Um, you know, there was, once they saw me getting through, a certain, there was lots of different stops on the border and I got through the first two and they, they were trying to figure out why they thought I was Ukrainian. They thought I was being cowardly and, and leaving the country. They began hitting Gav with his suitcases. They just, they didn't want him to go through. It was, it was just wasn't fair for them. Um, he was being pushed back. Security guys were pushing him back. He had to make himself heard, make him make himself known that he wasn't Ukrainian, that he was, he was like trying to escape back to his family, trying to get back yeah. to his family. You get to Poland, you get to safety, you get to your hotel, you decide to go for a nap and the phone call comes in from yeah. the surrogate's mum yeah. till he's on her way. Yeah, our wonderful surrogate mum messages to say she's on the way to hospital, labour has started and your little baby girl will be here soon. And she texts us the whole way through which I think it was about three or four hours she was texting us and then yeah. she said, okay, baby's coming. <laughs> and we didn't hear anything. And we were this, like, was, this was sort of mum herself texting us. Texting like. us and we were like, okay. And then what, 45 minutes, an hour yeah. later, she's like, your baby has arrived. She gave us the weight, everything. And then probably about another 45 minutes, an hour, and we got three pictures of Tilly, all swaddled up in her little white. Um, Look drunk. Yeah, in her little white gown she was kind of wearing and just milk drunk just, just happy, gorgeous happy, safe happy, healthy, healthy, and healthy here. yeah and our surrogate mum doing great as well yeah and I suppose at that time you thought maternity hospitals are safe mm -hmm. she will be okay she will be okay and then we were to learn that they weren't, they weren't. safe that they were that being evening targeted. we were told that they had moved the their ward in the maternity hospital down to the bomb shelter so Tilly was now in the bomb shelter of a maternity hospital and that's where she spent the next week of her life. So you got a nanny, an experienced nanny, to go to the yeah. hospital and it was we quite did. difficult to get the hospital to release Tilly. Yeah. They were worried about her safety. Yeah, we had all our documents, everything in place. Um, Tilly was ready to leave with the hospital, which um, where she was staying, they just had the moral belief that she wasn't they wouldn't let her leave, they wouldn't. You know, so it was quarter to five that evening, they released her and the curfew was... That's right. Curfew was five. start at five. So you, they, they you, were at, you were down to the wire? We were. Literally. They down. got her in the car at a quarter to five. You know, if, yeah, if, if it was any longer, she, we would have missed our window to, 
and everything everything we put in place would have you know not worked so at this point you're obviously waiting for right. Tilly to come across the border yeah. how long was that journey and how did you feel at that point because so, you knew yeah. at that stage she was just in a car with a nanny yeah. being driven at yeah. high speed out of the country exactly and um, so yeah we were in Poland we were making our way from Poland to Moldova at the time to be there waiting for Tilly when she arrived tell me about that moment when you see the car pulling up and you know that Tilly's in it Oh, so we had we were on Moldova, so we had to go into the Ukrainian city closest to. So we had to go one kilometer back into Ukraine, and yep, saw the car then, and obviously we had to do all our documents first and all the all the paperwork, and then um, these heroes brought our baby towards us and handed it straight to me. Of course. <laughs> and I just yeah, I got her in my arms. It was just pure joy, just such relief um, you could just feel the stress just leaving your body almost instantly it was just it was just the best feeling to just to have her safe in incredible. your arms and just but just the gratitude that we had for the people yeah the we never thank them enough it's never, just ever they enough. risking their lives to bring our little baby to us i just want to um move forward i suppose to yeah. To now, um, Leslie, because Tilly's here, she's safe, she's in Ireland, she's yeah. perfect. Yes. Um, but because she was born by surrogacy, mm -hmm. she's not recognised as your child. No. So we can get Tilly through a war zone, we can get everyone to help us get her home safe to Dublin. But the minute we land in Dublin airport, I am not recognised as her mum. I have no legal relationship to my own daughter. Uh, I'm a legal stranger. Um, I can't. The public health nurse was here just after Tilly got home. I couldn't consent to her heel prick test. On Monday, she'd be two months. I can't take her for her vaccines. I can't uh, apply for a passport. I can't take her abroad. When she's two, I can apply for guardianship with Gav's permission. But I'm not her guardian. I'm her mum. I'm 100% her mum. Leslie Ann and Gavin Grimes uh, speaking to me at their home in Wicklow uh, earlier today. Now joining me here in studio is journalist Michael O'Regan, Irish Daily Star reporter and columnist Laura Colgan and broadcaster Niall Boylan. Uh, Niall, their story is a remarkable one. You, you can't help but be moved. But to have a heart of stone, wouldn't you, not to be moved by that? And what got me really at the end was that they came through this war zone and what they went through was horrific. I mean, they're very brave people to do what they did, but mind you, it paid off in dividends at the end, a beautiful young baby, but that she's not recognised as a mother and it is time that we change the law in this country and it is time that we recognise surrogacy in this country the way it should be recognised, that that mother can't even, as she said, consent to a heel prick test or to vaccinations. She's essentially, she believes she's her mother and she is the child's mother, uh, but she's not recognised by the state. I mean, we can do so much in this country. We can bring in legislation tomorrow for anything we want, but yet here's a genuine case, and there's so many genuine cases just like this one, by the way, and we can't recognise, they can't be recognised by the state as the, as the daughter of that woman. Uh, but Laura, there is an Oireachtas committee. They have been tasked with looking at the issue of surrogacy because it stands in Ireland, whether it's commercial or altruistic, it's completely unregulated and 
people like Leslie Ann find themselves going through everything that she has been through but not recognised as this child's mother when she brings the child home to Ireland? Correct. The Oireachtas Committee focusing on surrogacy on the Assisted Human Reproduction Bill actually sat today but it was suspended because a row broke out between the politicians. There have been long-standing legal issues surrounding surrogacy in Ireland and they've only been further complicated by the invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, it's really important that this legislation is pushed through and, you know, it is so disappointing, I'm sure, for families like the Grimes to have, you know, this time dedicated in Oireachtas Committee suspended because politicians are fighting with each other because of their personal views around surrogacy. There were all kinds of questions asked today about whether surrogacy was exploitative or harmful and, you know, religious beliefs and all kinds of questions that were completely inappropriate were brought into it. The committee was suspended and, you know, again, these children are still left in this legal limbo. They're Irish citizens born to Irish parents. They're the biological children of Irish citizens and yet their mothers don't have any rights to them and, you know, that's just not acceptable. There was just one more thing in relation to that. I know it's slightly off the topic slightly, but I had a woman on the radio during the week who had two stillbirths, twins, and because one took a breath, uh, she gets a birth certificate for the child that took a breath, but because the other one didn't take a breath, uh, it's not considered to be a citizen as such, and thus she doesn't get a birth certificate. There's so many things wrong with legislation that we should be able to fix. And I understand there can be a lot of loopholes and legalities around these things, but I mean, such simple things that make such a big difference to people's lives can be changed. Uh, Michael, as a country, we have always really struggled with this, haven't we? We have struggled with it, but uh, Kira, we struggled for years with the divorce issue finally resolved it. We struggled for years on the abortion issue, resolved it. We struggled for years uh, uh, on gay rights and, gay, and uh, first of all, decriminalising homosexuality and then on gay marriage. I can recall the protests, the rosaries being said outside the Hall Aaron and all that, but we got over it. So on this particular issue, I think we should move on it. Uh, I, I think there's always a delayed reaction in Ireland to doing these things, as was shown by the issues uh, I referred to. But, uh, it, and the I issues think, that we saw at that Arachtis Committee today, which uh, had to be suspended yeah. because of a fallout, uh, quite a personal fallout yeah. between uh, two of those involved. Two yeah, I, involved. yeah I, I think it's time to speed this up. Obviously, is it, is ensuring that, that there are no legal loopholes left. Or? Sorry, Michael, for interrupting. But is it, a, is it a, a possibility that we sometimes get our priorities wrong in this country? The things that really affect people on the ground are not sorted out quickly enough. I mean, I'm pretty sure if the politicians wanted to bring in legislation tomorrow for whatever it happens to be, be it Eamon Ryan or whoever it happens to be for uh, climate change, they'll bring it in. They can bring in emergency legislation all the time. They can get somebody, you know, within the Attorney General's office to write up legislation fairly quickly. But yet, when it comes to the simpler things in life that affect people directly, we seem to have... We seem like to delay things in relation to... Is there a timeline say, on this actually, Laura, for this Oireachtas Committee to report uh, on this? It's open-ended as far as I know. So there isn't a timeline Look what we did with adoption laws. Look how long it took for adoptive people to be able to find out. And they still can't do it. You know, we just keep kicking things down the road constantly all the time. Uh, Laura, it also struck me today um, when I was sitting with the Grimes uh, and listening to them, you know, describe in detail that border situation. You know, men, fathers, brothers, sons being turned back, families being ripped apart eight weeks into this war. Sometimes I think we forget maybe the real human trauma and the human suffering. And, and they start reminded me of it. it I mean the, the description they gave of crossing the border was like the stuff of nightmares I don't think anybody wants to nobody imagines bringing their baby into the world in that way but and I think particularly when maternity hospitals were targeted uh, by the Russian troops that really sent shivers up everybody's spines that you know even pregnant women and their babies weren't safe um, 
you know, this is not only a concern for Ukrainians, I think there are around 14 Irish families that are due to welcome babies via surrogacy in Ukraine by the end of May. So I'm afraid that the Grimes may not be the last Irish family that experienced this. All right, and I'm sure the Grimes would want me to um, let people know that their surrogate uh, mother and her family uh, were safely evacuated uh, out of the Ukraine are now um, safe in Germany. Well, my panel is going to be staying with me. And after the break, the Irish Times Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary joins us to discuss her story about the international media influence of Irish MEPs Mick Wallace and Claire Daly. Stay with us. You're very welcome back. Well, the Irish Times has published a story about how MEPs Claire Daly and Mick Wallace have become stars of international state media in Russia and China. The story was written by the paper's Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary, who also tried to get the MEPs to comment on it at the European Parliament. Do you have any comment, please? Any comment for the Irish Times, please? A short time ago, I spoke to Naomi O'Leary, who wrote the story, and I began by asking her to tell me about the two MEPs' position in the European Parliament when it came to NATO and to the war in Ukraine. Um, so, uh, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace were among 13 MEPs in the European Parliament who voted against a key resolution that was brought in the wake of the invasion, uh, which was to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and they were among the 13 to reject it, they said, because um, partly because of their position on NATO. Um, Mick Wallace has said that he wants it to be abolished. Um, there was a reference in the text to the role of NATO in European security um, and also um, the importance of giving uh, Ukraine arms, uh, give the, the Ukrainian ar uh, army arms uh, to fight the Russian invasion. Um, so this, ha this uh, is among a number of other actions that have marked them out as in the minority in the European Parliament in a way that I think is gaining quite a lot of attention and is perhaps coming to characterise, well, people are, are asking whether this characterises the broader Irish position as well, because they're perhaps the most visible Irish MEPs at this point. So for your research for the Irish Times, you looked at Mick Wallace and Claire Daly and how their views and their opinions and their statements to the European Parliament are being represented by other media organisations in other countries, including Russia and China. And what did you discover? And so um, over a period of roughly 10 months, I monitored media, media coverage of the two MEPs in the Chinese, Russian and Arabic language media. Um, because I noticed that they were getting a disproportionate amount of coverage for MEPs. It's not really typical for MEPs to get so much coverage in places like China, particularly from a small country like Ireland. Um, and they keep going viral there. So, so much as a tweet or a particular speech in the European Parliament often does go viral in, in China, particularly since the invasion. And that um, seems to be because what they say in the European Parliament um, very much chimes with the arguments of the Chinese state. So things that suit the Chinese state in terms of criticism of sanctions, focusing on um, what they say is Western hypocrisy in the response to the invasion, um, focusing on uh, criticizing NATO, criticizing Washington, uh, painting the US as the overweening global military power and imperialistic power. And I suppose uh, diverting away from criticism of Russia um, in its invasion. 
and how has Russian media portrayed what they have said? Well, I found an interesting instance where Claire Daly's speech in which she said that the, she described the response of the European. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Parliament is making her sick um, and that was within 24 hours being played on Russian state uh, television on two different channels and there it was presented as proof that Western politicians were coming around to the West, the Russian point of view, that Western politicians were starting to speak out against what was described as an information campaign to discredit Russia and in particular, the massacre that happened in the Ukrainian town of Bucha was mentioned. Um, so that was described as, uh, you know, something fake that was set up to discredit the Russian army. And the speech of Daly and also some words by an Italian MEP were used as evidence, presented as evidence that politicians were coming around to this Russian viewpoint that this is all a sort of propaganda campaign against Russia. Uh, what kind of authority, Naomi, do they have given their status as MEPs on an international stage? I suppose what's changed is that these may be long-held views of the two MEPs, but now they are saying them in a different context. So they take on a greater significance outside of Ireland, where the emphasis might be on domestic politics. But now in the European Parliament, um, their status as members of the European Parliament gives them uh, quite a, a huge platform um, to, uh, to say these things. And the importance or the value that this represents for um, authoritarian regimes in the likes of China uh, and in Russia is that they can hold up uh, these speeches and statements and so on as evidence that Western figures agree with their point of view. Um, so the, in, I suppose it's important to note that in authoritarian regimes, it's uh, not common for fringe point of views to people with, who represent a fringe or who might, might represent something unusual to reach positions of great power and prominence. So if someone comes with a really important title, like member of the European Parliament and is presented, um, they're assumed to be speaking with a great deal of authority and as a powerful person who represents the mainstream. Um, so it's 
there's a high value placed on Western figures who uh, support regime viewpoints, and they're frequently relied upon for domestic propaganda purposes, uh, which is something that's going on in this case. So I guess overall what my investigation has re uh, revealed is this really disproportionate um, uh, media impact uh, that the two MEPs have in media that crucially is state-controlled. So we're talking about the state-owned, state-run um, media systems of China and of Russia um, and of other parts of the world. All right, we'll leave it there. Naomi O'Leary, thank you for your speaking to us this evening. Well, we asked both MEPs uh, for a response to that Irish Times story. And tonight we got a joint statement from Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. The statement said that the two MEPs made no secret of their anti-war politics and added that anyone who wants to know what they think doesn't have to wait for the Irish Times to, and I quote, selectively recycle and distort our public statements as if it were investigative journalism, unquote. The statement added that people could follow their work at the European Parliament online, on their social media and on their weekly podcast. Well, journalist Michael O'Regan, Irish Daily Star reporter and columnist Laura Colgan and broadcaster Niall Boylan are still with me. Uh, Michael, you remember Claire Daly um, from the late 90s sort of establishing herself as a, a politician uh, out around, I think it was uh, Fingal, wasn't it, in North County, yeah. Dublin. Does her position now, does it surprise you? It does, I have to say. In fact, it stuns me, I have to say. I first met Claire Daly when she was uh, a candidate for the, the Socialist Party in the then Dublin North constituency in 1997. Now, she was slowly building up a base. Uh, she was impressive then. She had no hope of winning the seat. But, I mean, she was building up a base in North Dublin. She did so through Fingal uh, County Council, elected to the Thal eventually in 2011. By dint of hard work, uh, very much the representative uh, of working class and the marginalised very, very impressive TD, I have to say. A very skilled, skilled speaker, spoke of passion. Very, uh, you know, uh, introduced a private member's uh, bill on abortion, allowing it for in very limited circumstances. It, it was defeated. But, you know, she was ahead of her time in that sense. Uh, I, 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 what I was thinking of there when she walked away from Naomi was the number of times I sat at press conferences given by uh, uh, Claire Daly on a variety of at the time, domestic issues. Uh, and it's, it, it, it absolutely stuns me. Uh, I, I thought actually as well that she probably would opt for uh, domestic politics. Uh, she certainly had a very, very strong base in North Dublin. Uh, she broke later, of course, with the Socialist Party. Uh, but um, at one time, she was a very close associate of Joe Higgins, a former TD who was the leading light in the Socialist Party at that stage. Um, Niall, does it concern you that their views are being represented on Russian TV, on Chinese TV, as perhaps the views of the Irish people or the Irish government? I think it is concerning, but I don't blame them for that per se. Now, I want to say at the outset, I don't agree with any of their politics, both Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. And I do remember Claire, she was actually a union representative in Dublin Airport at one stage, in the very early stages, as far as I remember. But you've got to think, these, they have been logically consistent for years, the pair of them, um, in their thoughts and their views. Um, I think sometimes they do get misrepresented. 
um, in relation to what they want and what their goals are. I think their goals are the same as everybody else. I think they want peace. And look, they've said that many times. And, you know, they were the first ones down at Channel Airport, you know, taking a hammer to a plane or whatever it happened to be at the time. So I think their goal is peace. And Irish neutrality has always been the backbone of what they believe in. Um, I think they've just gone about it the wrong way. Um, I think as European MEPs, they have a responsibility. Um, and currently at the moment, look, nobody has an answer. But the last thing we want, I think what they're looking to see is they don't want to see a war, a proxy war, which is we've seen in Afghanistan. So by funding a war, they believe that war encourages war. And I, think, think I, and I don't necessarily agree with their politics. I don't agree with any of their politics. But I think that's the, the argument they're going, but they've just gone too far. Michael. The contradiction, Kira, in, in what Mick Wallace and Claire Daly are saying, I think was summed up in an editorial in the Irish Times today. And it, I just quote a paragraph. It says, MEPs Mick Wallace and Claire Daly continue to play both sides condemning the invasion, but denouncing sanctions and developing celebrity status in Russian state-controlled media for their criticism of Western actions, all the while shamelessly attacking anyone who points this out. Do you think, though, that they can be held responsible for how you know, Russian TV and Chinese TV portrays their position? I think they can. Is that their responsibility? It, it, they're not naive, you know. Neither is, you know, they're experienced politicians. McWallace was elected in Wexford as an independent with a massive vote. Uh, in fact, he announced he was contesting the 2011 election in the predecessor to this programme, the Vincent Brown programme. He had a profile for media uh, appearances in that. Uh, his business, his uh, construction business had failed in the crash. Uh, so they're not naive. Uh, it, if they were naive, which they're not, it could be argued they're being manipulated, but they're not naive. Uh, Laura, I just want to move on to another uh, story today very briefly. It was the work-life balance uh, yes. bill, which came before Cabinet, I think, yesterday. It's meant to pave the way for more sort of flexible working conditions, but for, for whom exactly? So when this legislation was first proposed, I suppose it seemed quite radical. It was like nothing we ever saw before and that parents or anybody with caring responsibilities would be able to take up to five days leave per year and request kind of flexible working from their employer. Um, now, it appears that that legislation is now only going to apply to parents with children under the age of 12. Uh, who knows why it's the age of 12? Do teenagers and older children not require uh, childcare or, you know, need their parents around? Um, and also uh, people with caring responsibilities, their relative may need to live at the same address with them and the person may need to provide details of their mother or father or relative's illness to their employer, which I'm sure will bring about all kinds of data protection issues. Um, and of course, you know, not everybody who is a carer lives with the person that they're caring for. So I think there's a lot to still be ironed out about this. But, um, you know, it, 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 when it was put forward, it seemed quite radical. I think uh, the COVID crisis and their working remotely that that has brought about uh, really led to this. I don't think this would have happened any other way. All right, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. We have lots more after the break, so do stay with us. We'll be looking at the other big news stories of the week.
for a look back on all the other big news stories of the week. My panel is still with me and I'm also joined by Head of Policy with the Simon Community of Ireland, Wayne Stanley. Wayne, you're very welcome to the programme. And Laura, I want to start with you. Um, we have been covering the US sanctions on the Kinahan cartel extensively on the programme. We hear uh, today that the United Arab Emirates is also going to take action. Uh, what exactly are they going to do and what impact is this going to have on the Kinahans? The UAE imposed sanctions on six members of the Kinahan organised crime group today. Um, they've frozen all of their assets in Dubai. That includes personal bank accounts, corporate bank accounts, credit cards, debit cards. So really the sanctions are financial and it's significant for two reasons, I think. First of all, it really mirrors the sanctions that were imposed by the US Department of Treasury last week um, by freezing their assets. Uh, the US also imposed uh, flight restrictions on them. They can't fly with American Airlines and also US banks and organisations can't do business with them. Um, so that's really hitting them. And secondly, it's significant because it's the first um, bit of pushback, I suppose, we've seen from the authorities in Dubai. The, the, the real issue for the guards here in Ireland has been that they, there is no extradition agreement between Ireland and the UAE, which means it's proved impossible to get members of the Kinahan cartel before the Irish courts. You know, we're really relying on the authorities in Dubai to expel the Kinahans themselves. You know, before now, I think there was zero percent chance of that happening. Now that the authorities in Dubai have made it clear that the Kinahans are not welcome, they know what they're doing and they want to put a stop to it, gives some mm. sign of hope that that could happen and the day could come that the Kinahans end up before the courts. Um, it is interesting because the Irish government and the Irish guards, uh, Michael, for years, I suppose, have tried to persuade the UAE to target the cartel, but um, nothing has been done about it to date. It really, I think goes to the significance of those US sanctions, doesn't it? Oh, it does. This is quite a dramatic development. And for, you know, uh, I can remember the late Tony Gregory uh, naming drug push criminals mm -hmm. under the all privilege uh, way back, you know, because a lot of them were uh, active in his own Dublin Central constituency. And, you know, he used to speak of how some of them were driving around in big flash cars and living a high life and just getting away with it. So this is... This is very, very significant. Um, now, I just want to move on to um, the Ukrainian refugees um, who are now in Ireland. Some of them we know, know living in uh, Mill Street Arena in Cork. And we heard today um, from the Irish Red Cross about the pledges, those 24,000 pledges of vacant uh, accommodation and shared accommodation. 149 Ukrainians, I believe, 159 rather, have been placed in um, that accommodation. It certainly seems to be quite a slow quite a laborious task and it's putting real pressure on this. I think it's quite an impossible task and it doesn't help of course that the Minister for Justice herself comes out today and says she's changed her mind about taking a refugee in her own home because of her own logistics etc. She talks about leaving somebody isolated in the middle of County Meath. Now she did say she would take somebody as did Leo Varadkar and Simon Harris if I remember rightly as well but I think the biggest problem we're going to have is, is that the numbers at the moment I think are somewhere around the 26,000 mark maybe that was the last time I checked it could be a little bit more than that now. I personally believe we should have capped the number I mean, Ireland is a small country with a small economy. In the big scale of things, we do quite well as a country, and we are a very generous country. We're known throughout the world as being one of the kindest countries in the world. But there's a limit to what we can do. And I would rather see us look after people properly and do this properly, because these people deserve to be looked after, because all we do is watch the scenes on TV, rather than take in too many people and literally have people living on the streets. And that's what we could end up doing if we've nowhere to put them. I heard Roger O'Gorman today talking about making up, freeing up 4,000 spaces in campuses over the summer period in the colleges. But what happens when the students come back in September? I mean, this could go on for a long, long time. As we're seeing in the news, it's getting worse. So I don't really know where everybody is going to go. 
there's a limit to how far we can virtue signal, if that's the word you want to use. And you think that's what it is? I, I, think, I think a lot of it is, but, but and a lot of politicians are using this to virtue signal. But I do believe that we should have capped the numbers. I don't know what the number should be, 15, And the teacher doesn't think it's come out and, and the oh, minister today have this. said there will be no cap. Yeah, but some of the best economists in the country have said that we need to cap the numbers. I've spoken to politicians on the air who told me they need to cap the numbers, but they won't say it in the doll, and they should say it, because we do need to be logical about it as well. Uh, Wayne, in terms of the Simon community, are you worried about the knock-on impact that this you know, sudden, sharp demand for accommodation is going to have on your service users and their need for accommodation? Um, I, I think everyone is conscious that you know, th this is having a, a significant impact and there is a need for a, you know, emergency accommodation. This is a, a pan-European uh, catastrophe, a war, uh, millions of people who are being uh, made displaced and we need to respond to that. I think what has been really uh, heartening has been the generosity of Irish people who have come out and responded. I, I do think, you know, we're part of the thing of working through that, we'll see some of those, um, some of that accommodation maybe fall to the wayside. But I think we're going to have to respond and we're going to have to provide that emergency accommodation. I think where the, the, the larger concern is, is a year from now when the housing system has to start accommodating people and we get, we get past this initial provision of emergency accommodation. And you've said that the cost of living is pushing more and more families you know, out of rental accommodation and into homeless accommodation and that's going to create a demand as well? Yeah, so that's part of the crisis that we've been living with, the housing crisis and the, the financial crisis that we've been living with probably since 2014. Uh, if you think about it, there's a, we do a regular report where we look at the availability of private rental accommodation to people who are on a HAP payment, which is a, a, a local authority support. Um, in the last one, we looked at 16 areas and there was only 80 uh, homes available to, across four categories of, of, of people. That's down from 900 less than a year ago. So we've, it is a, a really uh, tight uh, market that we're in and people don't have enough resources so we need to give people the resources they need to get into the market and we need people uh, time to find accommodation and that's too, that's actually something that the government can start responding to uh, immediately so, th so here's what needs to be done when it comes to the housing assistance payment we need to see the rates increased there's a discretion in Dublin because most of the properties that are available for people who are on a half payment are in the Dublin and that's because if you're, in, if you're homeless in a Dublin region, the local authority can give you a 50% over the rates. It's only 20% outside of Dublin and you can treble the number of properties available if you give the same discretion to local authorities outside of Dublin. Will that not just push up the, the rental rates if they increase the HAP? The HAP rate hasn't increased since 2016. But will it not just increase the rental rates? Because we already spend 25 million, I think, in Dublin alone just on HAP per month. So, I mean, is that not just going to push up for landlords to get greedier and say, well, they're getting more money, so I'll charge them more money? Uh, I, it, I think you're right that we can't continue to chase rents and chase rents, but at the minute we have a housing crisis. The rates haven't been changed in 2016 and, rate, and the, the rents have skyrocketed in any case, so all we're doing is catching up. Um, we can't chase rents forever, but the truth is if we don't uh, provide people with the resources they need to manage a home in the middle of a cost of living crisis as well, they're getting pinched from every side and we're going to see increased homelessness. And we, so that means right. we're, we're putting the weight of the housing crisis on the shoulders of people who can least afford it. Um, I just want to bring our viewers some breaking news. Uh, prosecutors in Portugal say a suspect has been formally charged in Germany over the disappearance of British toddler Madeleine McCann in 2007. I'm sure it's a story that's going to be on the front page of most of the newspapers. There's nobody in the studio who has forgotten uh, Madeleine McCann or ever forget that story.
Absolutely not. Um, I just want to move to um, the election, um, Michael, in France, uh, Le Pen and Macron. It's now a, a two-header. There was a debate last night. I think it's clear that um, Macron won that. But in terms of Marie Le Pen, she has, I think, worked very hard and perhaps successfully to, to change her image for this election, hasn't she? She has, and I notice, as here, politicians are doing it, Position, she's talking a lot now about the cost of living, mm. trying to get away perhaps from the image she had. But uh, the prospect of a Eurosceptic being president of France doesn't bear thinking about. Uh, it really is quite shocking. And when you think that there was a French president, Charles de Gaulle, who blocked Britain in the early 1960s and Ireland, we were hoping to piggyback in the UK, to get into the then EEC, it's some change uh, uh, in France's role role in Europe. Uh, a we lot we of kind of thought, we did think, Lord, at one stage that this was on a knife edge, this election, didn't we? And now that's no longer the case if the polls are to believe, be believed. Macron has gone 15 points ahead, but nobody seems to feel that it's a done deal. No, I mean, I think Macron will cross the finish line. I think he will win the election. But in fairness to Le Pen, she's put up a good fight. Uh, you know, I think she has changed the minds of some uh, undecided voters. Uh, you know, so I think... By softening her image, by focusing on things like the cost of living... Yeah, she's probably a bit more relatable in that sense. Um, but I think now, like, really... She'll be strong opposition. I don't think she'll be the leader of France. She'll be strong opposition. Uh, Niall, if she does, though, get a significant vote, if she gets, she I think, could. a 60-40 mm -hmm. is what they're saying at the moment, if she got 40% of the vote, how much of a breakthrough is it for the far right, for that sort of anti-European voice in a country like France? Well, Macron in the last election, from what I remember, was 64% of the vote. I mean, now he's nowhere close to that as far as uh, Le Pen is concerned. And in the debate the other night, I think I said to Michael, it was 60-40. And I think where she probably is winning in relation to immigration and her immigration policy. So I think she's probably going to get a lot of those voters, those extreme right-wing voters. They'll come out and vote. The problem that Macron is going to have is a lot of his voters won't vote because they won't bother because they think he's going to win anyway. So it could, you know, it certainly could help her position. You know, I don't see a huge pop. I know a lot of people don't like her. I don't particularly like all of her policies. I agree with some of what she says. Uh, I'm not extreme right-wing. I probably lean to the right slightly. Um, but I think it may do a bit of good for Europe. I know Michael wouldn't like it at all, but I think it may. I don't, I don't believe a little bit of scepticism is such a bad thing. <laughs> Appalling vista. Uh, speaking of anti-Europe, Boris, Boris Johnson, uh, Wayne, this Partygate story rolls on and on and on, no matter what Boris does to try and batted away, it now looks like he is going to be investigated by the Commons. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's going, to, that's going to play out. I mean, there is something, there's, there's some similarities in, in the sort of populist rhetoric of, of both of those uh, politicians. And I think actually it's a, it's a salutary story for our own politicians is that we talk about the, you know, the attraction of the right or whatever, but actually it's a failure of politics to deliver. I mean, obviously, the, the area that I keep looking at is housing. That has been the number one issue uh, in this country since 2014 in terms of polls. It's, it's housing and health. And, and still it's leading people to feel it. disillusioned, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the failure of politics. So where do you go? If, if, if you keep voting for the same people and they're not delivering for you, you start to look around. And if, if some of it gains traction and they can soften their image and it's, it's a thing, you know, all of a sudden extremes start to become more attractive. So um, I think it, politics has a, has a job to do and it, it should get down and do it. Laura, I just want to ask you about a story I think a lot of people are talking about in their own homes. It's the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp def um, defamation <laughs> trial 
there's something about it, I have to say, I think it's quite uncomfortable viewing, isn't it? It is, and I think because the trial is obviously in the US, it's being live streamed on all kinds of channels. You can watch it on TikTok if you want. Um, you know, we're hearing every every intricate detail of their relationship. And as you say, some of it was really grotesque. Um, Johnny Depp made all kinds of allegations about assaults that he suffered at the hands of Amber Heard. She's taking the stand today and will likely say similar. Um, I think, you know, the previous libel trial against The Sun in the UK, because there were no cameras, we didn't quite uh, appreciate the dynamic between them. Um, Johnny Depp obviously lost uh, that libel case. And I think now, you know, this case is just seems to be in a totally different league. They're, you know, it's very kind of salacious um, and it is uncomfortable viewing. And finally, uh, Michael, to probably for you, what is the biggest news story of the week? Man United finally has a new manager. They have a new manager, yeah, Eric <laughs> uh, Ten Hag uh, announced this evening. Have you hope? Have you hope again? I have, and I have to say, I, I would appeal to the people of Ireland who have followed Manchester United because of the <laughs> Irish connection over the years, going way back to the days of Matt Busby. Stay faithful. Um, yeah, stay faithful. Stay with this team. <laughs> they will come again. A bit like the dubs in the Jave. Dubliners would probably feel the same. Well, they did and now they're gone, which I'm <laughs> delighted about. But anyhow, uh, that's it from us this week. My thanks to Michael, Laura, Niall and Wayne from all of the late team here. Good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.